0: I want to welcome you to Providence at West Palm Beach. Uh, the text tonight is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. And as the person who made our slides today reminded me, Keith, this is a lot of scripture and many slides. So if you want to follow along, there's uh, Red Pew Bibles, and it's the same uh, version, translation that's up here on the screen. It's NIV. And though it is a little bit of a longer text, I actually think you will be engaged with it throughout the whole thing. All right, this is starting in verse 16 and going to verse 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Aragopagus, where they said to him, may we know that this new teaching... May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there (coughs) spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aragopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship... I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. So we've been in um, this series all year called Rooted, and this month in particular, we've been in um, talking about wisdom and what does it mean to be rooted in wisdom, and especially as we think about global issues and, and world issues, but even doing uh, political things. We just had our election here uh, last week for our mayor, just the need for wisdom in our culture, the need for wisdom in our society. And at the beginning of the month, we talked about how the wisdom of God is born from humility, that it really begins in humility. And then last week, we talked about the wisdom of God will silence you and stir you. It will test you, and finally, it will bring you to your knees. And tonight, we're going to talk about why we need the wisdom of the world to navigate the city. Why we so desperately need the wisdom of the world to navigate the city? Um, Tim Keller, who I studied under for six weeks in Manhattan, uh, has become a pretty prolific author. I think he releases about two books a year, and um, you know he's, he's he planted Redeemer Church in um, in Manhattan in the late '80s, and. The way that happened, it was actually by accident. Tim was there trying to get somebody else to plant the church, and he basically studied the city for two years straight, bringing people to the city and trying to convince somebody else to plant the church. But what happened over the course of those two years is that he became an expert in Manhattan. And how did he do that? By asking a lot of questions. Because he was trying to prepare the next pastor who was going to come and start Redeemer. So he would take out uh, people from uh, Wall Street and ask them what it was like to live in Manhattan, what it was like to work on Wall Street, what it was like to live in the Lower East Side or the Lower West Side or the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side. Uh, what was it like to live in Brooklyn? What was it like to live in Harlem? What was it like to live in these places? Uh, Did they have any kind of religious upbringing? If so, what was it about? What did they think about God? Uh, What did they think God thought about them? What was the secret to life? What was the key to success? He asked them so many questions. He became a student, a learned student. In fact, when I went to training with Tim Tim Keller about church planning, I really don't remember much. Uh, We sat in class from 8 to 5 every day. Uh, I couldn't tell you one thing that I talked about or I learned from those classes except this. Never stop being a learner. That's what I learned from Tim Keller. In fact, going here, coming here to West Palm Beach to plant a second church after planting in Miami was harder than planting the first church in Miami because in some ways I thought I knew what I was doing because I'd done it before. So I thought, oh, well, I can just do what I did in Miami, just do that here. And even though we're in the same region of South Florida, it's a very different culture and it's a very different context. So I constantly have to keep learning. And to this day, we're three and a half years old as a church, I'm still having to relearn things. I'm having to keep asking questions because it's so easy to think that you finally know the answers. Well, Tim um, started making it into the mainstream media. And uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the TV show Morning Joe. Morning Joe anybody watch this at all? MSNBC? Yeah, some of you have seen it. Okay. So, uh, so, Tim Keller ends up on Morning Joe and everybody in the network is like, okay, we we're all kind of notified, you know, watched him this morning on Morning Joe. And um, other Christian thought leaders have been on Morning Joe or other Christian um, pastors who are kind of famous end up on Morning Joe. And it honestly is kind of embarrassing to be completely honest with you. Uh, They get cornered, they get asked questions, they get in debates about things that are really kind of uh, fickle, and they end up on a soapbox they don't wanna be standing on, and it's quickly kicked out from underneath them, and it's just kind of embarrassing. I don't know how else to say it. Tim Keller gets on, and you see see the guys uh, lining up their questions. They're getting ready to start firing shots at this guy because they know they can dismantle him just like they've dismantled other uh, Christian authors or or preachers and pastors and kind of showing, you know, some of their ignorance and everything. And they start asking Tim questions. And, uh, you know, you're kind of going, whoa, like the way he's dealing with this question, he's actually making them think more about the question they asked. And by the time the interview's over, you can see the demeanor of the whole time, the conversation, the whole interview has really changed. The next time Tim comes on to Morning Joe, something so crazy happened. The people who were doing the interview had real questions for him. Personal questions that were connected to their lives. Because Tim Keller spent so much time studying their questions, trying to understand their questions, trying to understand the heart of his city, that he was able to listen and engage with the marketplace of ideas and religion in a way that they had not seen other religious leaders do. Brilliance. If there's a thing that Tim Tim Keller is brilliant in, it is that area. Brilliant. And I would encourage you that if you've never seen those uh, interviews on Morning Joe, you can Google them and find them, uh, just Tim Keller on Morning Joe. And you can see the sincerity that begins to happen in the real conversation, the real dialogue, that they begin to look to Tim Keller as a source of wisdom, how to engage things in their city. Three points tonight. The first one, the wisdom of learning to listen to the city that is born from an alive heart. In the marketplace of ideas, learning to listen to the longing behind them. And there we find Paul, St. Paul, in verse 16, he's in Athens, which he says is full of idols And we also know it's full of ideas. In verse 17, Paul begins to be in dialogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and he does so both in the synagogue, but he also does it out in the marketplace, out in the workforce, out at school, out in the streets, in the cafes, in the coffee shops. He's engaged with the religious. You know, oftentimes the religious have this question, right, which is how do we please God so that God will give us the life we want. So often that is the question of the religious, right? If you're a farmer, it's what do I got to do for God to get him to bring the rain to my field? What do I got to sacrifice for him? What do I got to give him? What do I got to pay him? Which God is it that I need to go and give something to so that he will bless me the way that I want to be blessed so that I can, you know, have the crop that I want to have and I can have the things I want to have and the care for my family. This is really the relationship of the religious to God is how do I appease God so that he will give me what I want. And in particular, the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks here, he's talking about Greeks who have become Jewish. They're a minority in the culture. And they have a question, I would say, a longing behind their question, and that is that they might have justice as a minority, that they might find an advocate who sees them and really understands them. And then in verse 18, he's connecting with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, and I don't know how much you know about the Epicureans and the Stoics, but... Sometimes we can conf- confuse Epicureans with being like pure hedonists. It's not exactly right. And sometimes we talk about being stoic and that means not being emotionally engaged. It's somewhat right. But a- Epicureans' desire was to be free from fear and pain. They were strictly materialistic or materialist. And in some ways they were attacking uh, superstition and the idea of divine intervention. They shunned politics. They saw the universe as atoms and void. There's no afterlife, and pain and suffering are bad. Happiness and fulfillment were good. But how did you achieve those things? By living modestly, to gain knowledge of the workings of the world, and to limit one's own desires. It's not whatever feels good. That's not the idea behind Epicureans. It's they actually advocated for moderation in things, a balanced life. The flourishing of life. You may have heard us talk about that around here. And ultimately to conquer the fear of death, which would free you from all fear. Desperately wanted to be free from anxiety. To them this was the great thorn in the side of man. And what was it rooted in? Fear of death. So what would the longing be there? The longing for the Epicurean would be, I want to live forever. I don't know if you share that longing, but I don't want to end. I want to live forever. In the Stoics, there's more of a philosophy of personal ethics, accepting the moment as it presents itself, not allowing oneself to be controlled by a desire for pleasure or fear of pain. By using one's mind to understand the world, and to do one's part in nature's plan. And by working together and treating others fairly and justly, the universe would somehow kind of find this way of going about that you actually are becoming a part of it in more a succinct way. In many ways, it was a type of, of fatalism. Logos was the structuring principle, the how and the why of matter, and they too were deterministic. The study of math and logic is essential. It revealed the underlying structure of the universe. Studying philosophy is essential to (coughs) to alleviating suffering and to living the good life. Since the universe was developing in a rational, linear way, follow nature. Just align with it. And whatever happens is for the best. Whatever happens will happen. Maybe you've just heard this saying, you know, that's life. These these philosophies still show up in our world today. Man's problem for them, he he resists the unavoidable outcomes of fate. What is it that they long for? I would say that the Stoic actually longs to be set free from this system that seems to have no alternative. To connect with something greater that is alive that empathizes with them and so in verse 19 as paul is engaging with the religious as he's engaging with the philosophers he gets taken to the ergopagus to mars hill It's this prominent rock outcropping there in athens And it overlooked the city, and it was the high court of Athens. So he's taken there. It is the the center of temples, cultural facilities. And this is where Paul is taken. And this is what the accusations are that have been made from verse 18. They call him a babbler. They say he's advocating for foreign gods. And then in verse 20, as he begins to share there, they say that he's sharing strange ideas. And what is Paul's reaction? As we go back to his first reaction as he came into the city, what was it? Is that he looked around and he observed something. He saw all the idols. And it says he was distressed. Paul looks around, he sees all the idols, and his first response is that he has a grieving heart. That he is broken like Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. See, last week we were in the city of Jerusalem, which was called like the city of wisdom for the people of God. Now we're in Athens, which in many ways would be the city of wisdom for the world. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Paul is weeping over Athens. He is distressed. But what does he do? Instead of withdrawing, what does he do? He engages. People are lost. They're worshiping man made objects, the idols that will actually enslave you. And instead, in the midst of engaging, instead of withdrawing, he engages and he is curious. And he listens. And he asks questions he studies and he understands the longings behind these people. And this, my friends, is really what C.S. Lewis <clears throat> was always after in us. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis, if you've ever resonated with C.S. Lewis, Lewis is really after the longing of man. He is after the longing and he comes alongside of that longing. and He fans that flame when he connects with it in us. And then Paul discerns what is real, beautiful, good here in the city. What is real, what is beautiful, what is good here in the city according to the living God, according to his community, the church, according to his story revealed through scripture. That is what Paul is learning to look at the city through the city of Athens. And lastly, he picks his battles. So Paul doesn't take on every single idol in the city and dismantle every single idol. Instead, which one does he go after? The one that presents the door, a doorway for him to connect with the longing of their hearts. When we were in Miami before we moved here, um, I was working for a church in Key Biscayne, and growing up, In my hometown in Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, I had, you know, we were kind of like an area where we wore Patagonian outdoor clothing, and I think I've probably shared this story even here before with you all, but uh, I remember uh, when I was in my Bible study, and I was notified that um, Patagonia had done some things that were aligning itself with more of like a liberal, uh, democratic kind of uh, political stance about some things. And you begin to hear this talk in some of the Christian circles I was in, like, I'm going to boycott Patagonia. I'm not going to wear Patagonia clothes anymore. And I was like, what, like, what is that going to accomplish? You know, what are we, what's the purpose of that? You know? And so there was just this kind of, like, push against Patagonia. And I had done some stuff with film in Miami, already, and we had gotten quite a a following through that, and I heard about this film called 180 Degrees South. So I reached out to Patagonia, and I said, you know what, man, now that I have learned about connecting with my city more, now that I have been in the city of Miami, I've been here uh, in this neighborhood, Key Biscayne, and I've learned about the longings of the people here in our community... And I've been able to be exposed to this film. I see longings in this film that I would like to bring here and highlight for our community. So I reached out to Patagonia. I sent him an email. I sent him some of the pictures from other film premieres we had done. Guy calls me up, nicest guy ever. Guy's from California. He's like, yeah, bro. What's up, man? Your pastor? Oh, that's so rad, dude. You want to bring Patagonia? That's so cool, man. We've never had a pastor reach out to us like this, man. So rad, bro. Of course, we'd be happy to send you the film, man. What is it that you love about? Uh, So here's the things. It was about enjoying creation, caring for creation, and being a voice for the voiceless. Those were three things in the film that I was like, they were glaring me in the face. Now, if I said creation, if I used that terminology when we were advertising the film on Key Biscayne uh, and to marine biologists that were coming from the University of Miami and the meteorologists that were coming and the other people in the sciences that came to the film, if I would have said creation, that would have sent up like a red flag. So I just said, Caring for the environment, enjoying the environment, and being a voice for the voiceless and we had like 500 people show up to this film that Patagonia created our church put it on at the beach um, beach club it 's a public place and after it was over, one of the ladies in our church who worked for um, Nova and was you know basically spent half her life underwater gets up and starts talking about um, you know, how we're trying to do more as a church to be engaged with our environment, to care for the environment. Would you partner with us? And all of a sudden these relationships start. And then they, people from that end up coming to the church and having these conversations and we get involved in more uh, cleanup activity in the city. So why do, why do I, you know, tell that story is because I think the creators of Patagonia Uh, of of the film, 180 Degrees South, are on to these beautiful themes. And as a Christian, I can look at the world and I can say to the world, like, well, you're not getting it like I get it. You're not getting it purely or it's not coming out of the church or you're not a Christian filmmaker, so we're not going to promote your film." That's one kind of posture that we can have. The other posture we could have is that you're lower than us, that we have kind of the superior way, the higher way. But the way that I was taught by mentors and the way that I was shown uh, by by men like Tim Keller is actually to see that the people of Patagonia are actually teaching us something. People who are not even Christians are teaching us something. They're revealing something to us that maybe we as Christians have even forgotten or neglected. Like our relationship with the environment. I mean, just think about that. For those of you who grew up in churches, God created the whole world. How much have you talked about the environment in your churches? It is neglected. And it's sad because it is a reflection of actually... (laughs) Bad theology. Patagonia changed my life with that film. Once that film, when that film came out, when I was working with that film, I made a commitment to work outside as much as possible. And any of you that know me know that I um, go to Grandview like all the time. And if you ever meet with me, I always want to be outside. And if I ever have a day off, I'm always outside. I have like a tan line to prove it right now. I love being outside. There is a relationship that we are missing out on because we're not outside. We're not connected with the earth. And Paul's walking around the city, and he's going, he's, he's displaying the wisdom of learning how to connect with the city for us. And I would say, I would add, without compromising yourself or your community, Because God is connected to that city. And so, in verse 23, in his curiosity, Paul found it. He found the idol of the unknown God. You can imagine just going around, he's looking at all the idols in the city, and he's going, Okay, God, please, maybe there'll be one. You know, there'll be an entry point here, there'll be something. But Paul's not afraid of the gods that the world is presenting to him. He's not afraid of the gods that the city's presenting to him. He's engaging with them and that's how he finds out that there's one that's to the unknown God. And the light, the light flicks on for him. This is his entry point. And in that, he affirms and dignifies the people of that city. He says, you got it right. You got got an idol here to the unknown God. You got it right. You've actually been doing it. You've already been worshiping this God even though you don't know him. Great job. Way to go, guys. He's affirming dignity in them. You are so hungry. You're already worshiping him without even knowing it. Think about that for a second. Think about the people that you engage with who are not possibly Christians or wouldn't call themselves Christians. But their longings are alive, their hunger is alive, and they're looking. They're looking for this other God. They still haven't found the one. They're looking. And then he brings the compassion. But you don't know this God. And that's why you call it unknown. But I'm going to tell you about this God because you can know this God. And in verse 24 and 25, here comes the liberation that he brings. He made everything and he sustains everything. He doesn't need you to make him a house. This was driving so much of the religions you know, they would like tax the people. They, you come, you got to give us money to get the blessing. There are churches to this day that preach that. If you give to God $10, he'll give you more. He'll give you 100 But if you don't give, then the temple won't be built, and he'll be neglected, and guess what? He's going to neglect us. And that's the way the mindset was for so many of these idols. And he's setting them free. He's like, man, you don't need to build God a house. What? He's like deconstructing their whole religious system. He doesn't need you to do something for him. He's the one who gives you life. He's the one who gives you breath every single day. He's the one who sustains us. He goes on to say, He made all nations through one man the unity to fill the whole earth. And in verse 27, that they might seek Him, reach out to Him, and find Him. And this is the verse that hit me so hard. For He is not far from any of us. If you, if you have like a pen or a paper, if you, if you have a phone, maybe just text that to yourself. Uh, that you can see it later this week. Send it to yourself in an email. What Paul is saying right here, for he is not far from any of us. He is in a city full of idols. He's talking about their unknown God, and he's like, That God is close to all of us. He's close to all of us. In fact, this is how close he is, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. We are in him. We are his offspring, as your poets have said. Paul is able, because he knows the culture, because he knows the city, he's able to reach in to their own authors, pull out their own poetry, quote it back to them, and say, this is it. This is it, the unknown God, the one your poets have even spoken about. This is the one. Verse 29, God is not confined to an image, to our skill, to our design. He invented us. He is the curator, the artist at work above all of this. We did this really fun exercise with um, Allison um, this past week for Providencia, in which we thought of Providencia as a person. I don't think I've told this story in here, have I? No. Um, And uh, we called her Pravi, and uh, for some of us a man, some of us a woman. For me, she was a woman. And um, we asked ourselves, you know, if if Pravi was a woman, um, what would her values be? What would she be like? And so everybody in our our staff, including our volunteer staff, they were were there writing down like one-liners or like one word. And it was so, so cool to see that every single person there wrote down this one word about pravi, and that word was creativity, or creative, sorry, creative. The one word that every single person on our staff wrote down was the word creative, and I was like so happy. And then Sarah Clare, of all people, you're not gonna believe who she quoted, this lady named Brene Brown. (laughs) And she said this line, that vulnerability, that creativity, I'm sorry, that vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity. That vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity. So for Paul, Paul has gone into the city and he's listened to the city and he's studied the city. In his compassion, his love for the city has opened him up to connect with the city, to be curious about the city, to be vulnerable with the city. Guys, he's standing on trial at court. That's how vulnerable it's become for him, right? He's on trial. And there in the midst of that, he will create and He will reveal to them who God is. And I don't know if you think about your work in this way, but you know, Brene Brown was studying, she's a researcher, and she was studying vulnerability. And she would say that's what brought her back to her faith. That she kind of became a Christian again because she was studying vulnerability. And she realized that this uh, God that Christianity proclaimed was actually the God of vulnerability. That the God of the Bible, the God who created this artist, that he is vulnerable all the time. That in fact, that is where we have intimacy, that is where we connect, and in connection is where life comes from. And Paul, as he's there engaged with the philosophers, with the religious, with the city of Athens, we see the wisdom of learning to create for the city, of being an artist for the city. You see, Paul, in some ways, is entered into the courtroom. He's like a lawyer. And do you know who wins in the courtroom? Do you know who wins? Israel can tell you who wins, uh, Drew Hanley can tell you who wins. Others of you who work in law or study law, they can tell you who wins. The person who wins in the courtroom is the person who tells the best story. Right? Is that right, Drew? Yeah. Person who tells the best story. Paul is an artist, he's a legal artist, and he's going to try to tell the best story. And he does. Verse 30. God has come out of the closet. He has come completely fully out of the closet. And you don't have to run from him, run to him. He's right here, living, breathing. He has walked among us. He became one of us. He actually became a human. And this is the challenge of us as Christians. For those of you who would claim Christ as your Lord and Savior, Part of your challenge as you think about wisdom, as you think about living uh, wisely in the world, living wisely in your profession, is how do we create in such a way that reveals this, that reveals who God is? How do we do our work every day in such a way that reveals who God is? How do our institutions reveal this. Paul does it poetically. In verse 31 he says, justice is coming. The world will be made right through the one who stared death in the face who died. But he did something that no one else had had the power to do within them and that he's, he resurrected. Now there is new possibility. If this power were to be unleashed in all of us in the world, what would happen? If the world had the possibility, the power within them of the resurrection to overcome death, to make a new world, the possibilities are endless. And in verse 32, it says, some sneered, but some wanted to hear more. And in verse 33, they ultimately, some of them followed him. It doesn't say they believed that day. This says some followed him and believed. So they started a journey. He was engaged with them in a way. He continued to be engaged with them in a way. He continued to create as an artist in a way to help them understand who God was. And this man who is a ruler in the Aragopagus becomes a believer and then a man of great power and then a woman who in that time, in that period, would have been less, would have been lower on the power totem pole. But both of them believe. Both of them are unified. Both of them are brought together. And they become followers and believers of the God who knows our longings. Of the God who put them there. See, when you see Jesus revealed, when you see Jesus as God revealed, you see God as the artist who learned to listen, the God who always listens. He always hears our prayers, is always connected, is always creating through it all, even our breath. Even in our pain and suffering when the world says, you must have been abandoned by God. You must have been left alone by God. And God says, I'm even more closer than. You will know me even more in your pain and suffering than anything else. Even through death. that Even through death, there will be the birth of a whole new world. Let us pray.